Chapter 13 of Prowling About Panama by George A. Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 13 The Caribbean World. Readers of Robinson Crusoe associate the Caribbean Sea with piracy and rum, but usually have few other ideas on the subject. Most people of the United States have scarcely so much as heard that there may be any Caribbean world except that it is somewhere in the tropics. To be sure, the Caribbean Sea has a way of impressing itself upon those who sail its troubled tides. Perhaps the shades of the villains who used to cross these waters on their murderous expeditions still lingers to raise the adverse winds and toss the seasick passenger in his misery. Certain it is that very few travelers have any affection for the 700 miles of salt water between the Mosquito Coast and the islands so notorious in the 16th century. It is with something of surprise, then, that the prowler about Panama learns of a homogeneous population living on the chain of islands that begins below Puerto Rico and swings downward in a graceful curve to the tip of South American coast. These lesser Antilles mark the eastern boundaries of the famous, or infamous, Caribbean Sea. Though small in size, their considerable numbers and large populations make them important. If they are not so well known now, at least they have the distinction of having been discovered by Columbus when he set out to find a way to the East Indies and discovered the West Indies instead. The political complexion of these islands varies greatly. Government is shared by Spain, France, England, and the United States, and the languages spoken conform to the governing power. The purchase of the Danish West Indies has given the United States a permanent and prominent influence in the group. No account of matters Panamanian could omit reference to the people of this West Indian world. From the beginning of Panama's history, Caribbean adventurers have crossed the sea in any craft that would float and have played a large part in the restless events of the Isthmus. West Indian influence and blood were mingled with the history of the Isthmus for 400 years, and in these last days it has been the West Indian who furnished the labor that dug the Panama Canal and who still contributes the brawn and perspiration for the work of the canal zone. 25,000 of these people live on or near the zone and are employed by its government, and probably as many more live nearby and mingle with the native life of Panama. All through the interior, there are always some West Indians. Without the West Indian, the digging of the canal would not have been impossible, but would have been much more difficult. Chinese coolies would have cost more to import and could hardly have worked for less money. Considering the cost of living on the canal zone, the West Indian has furnished some of the cheapest labor in the world. In construction days, the nine or ten cents an hour wage was more than the black man had received at home, but his living expenses on the zone were very much higher than on the Caribbean islands. The wage scale of the West Indian on the canal zone has been revised and increased several times by the American government in an effort to keep pace with the rising cost of living, but it must be said that the laborer's wage of about $30 a month, with from 3 to $6 deducted for the rent of two rooms, does not afford a very sumptuous living for a man and his family. The silver man on the zone pays the same price for his food and clothes as does the gold white man, 
who receives 25% higher wages than is paid for the same work in the States, and in addition has a furnished apartment or cottage free of rent cost. The men on the gold rate complain of the high cost of living. What would they do if reduced to one-sixth of their present wages they do not stop to consider? It is not a pleasant subject to face, but it is hoped that the wages of the West Indian may be lifted to the point where he can at least buy food enough to keep him in a good physical condition. The West Indies furnishes the plantation labor of Panama and Costa Rica, without which there would be little plantation work done. In the hot and humid banana groves, he endures the temperature and handles the huge banana bunches as though born for the job, as perhaps he is. Out from Almirante and Puerto Limon range the tracks of the plantation railroads through hundreds of miles of banana forests where the black man supplies the labor for the largest farms in the world. Forty or fifty thousand of these people live on and about the plantations of the Atlantic coast, and without them, the largest agricultural enterprise ever carried on under one management would collapse. The West Indian on the Isthmus is not the West Indian at home. He may live and die on the mainland, but he thinks in terms of the islands from which he came. Like the American Negro, he is of African descent, but his African origin is so remote that no trace of it remains in his consciousness, though it is evident in his psychology. Most of the West Indians about the Canal Zone dream of returning to the islands again. These people of the Caribbean world have a decided race consciousness, and in their thinking and living are a world unto themselves. Separate and distinct from the greater Antilles in the mainland, they know very little of the continental life and customs, and any attempt to classify them with American Negroes or Europeans raises a set of social problems difficult to solve. To the North American, the mental process of the West Indian are a psychological jungle in which the explorer is soon lost. Perhaps no one has yet essayed to really understand this man, and those who have tried to analyze him maintain that he does not understand himself. Certain it is that he does not trouble himself with any self-analysis. He has enough other things to occupy his attention. With the psychological background of his remote African ancestors, his race characteristics have changed very little since the days when his forefathers were forcibly torn from their native land and deported into savage slavery. The social sanctions of the West Indian are rigid and well-established. The list of forbidden things is long and complex, and of signs and dreams and portents, strange and powerful, there seems to be no end. Numerous negatives appear in his social and personal creed, and he who violates these prohibitions must be a courageous soul. To introduce any original, new idea into this scheme of things is a difficult task, and is apt to arouse a whole chain of reactions, complex and mysterious. This man will follow literally any able leadership, but the leader must go in the direction of the established currents of opinion, or he will have a hard time of it. The West Indian has a religious capacity that impresses the visitor as a remarkable aptitude for things sacred. Such, indeed, it is. And the religious life of the earnest and conscientious members of this race exhibits a fine type of devotion and sacrifice. As might be expected, there is free expression of emotional experience, 
but on the whole, those who are truly religious match their songs by their deeds and their testimonies by their lives. Practically nothing is known on the isthmus of anything bordering on hysteria. When it comes to familiarity with the English Bible, the average church member will put to shame his white friend, and in interpretation of scripture, some very unique and interesting efforts are produced. In matters of doctrine, most of these people are rigid immersionists. The women invariably wear their hats in church on the ground that St. Paul commanded such observance, but they ignore the exhortation of the same apostle that the women keep silence in the churches. All the special occasions possess thrilling interest, and almost any West Indian will go hungry to get good clothes. How they manage to dress as well as they do on the incomes they receive is a mystery that has not yet been solved. An experienced missionary among these people says that practically every West Indian at some time in his life is a member of some church. If this is true, many of the West Indians in Panama are backsliders, as a majority are not at present showing any interest in Christian observances or moral living. Possibly, many of those who are genuinely devout and consistently Christian establish a membership in several different churches one after another. Tiring of one church, discontented with the pastor, or encountering personal difficulties with other members, it is easy and convenient to join some other congregation, and of split-ups and break-offs there seems no end. Nearly every church on the Isthmus has its deflections and divisions, and anything like the modern movement toward unity and cooperation of the Christian program is a terra incognita to this enthusiastic individualist. A surprising thing is the capacity for financial self-sacrifice of the West Indian. Out of the pennies that he receives as wages, he contributes liberally to the support of his church and for the education of his children. Nearly all West Indian churches on or near the canal zone are self-supporting, and nearly all West Indian schools are maintained from tuition fees. If this people were to receive good wages, they would not only wear good clothes, but would contribute to community enterprises and keep their children in school as long as possible. That the more dissolute members of the community would spend their money for rum is no reason for depriving the laborer of his hire. Living without adequate means of recreation or possibilities of culture or wide information Life is nevertheless saved from deadly monotony by the exercise of the high gift of controversy. When it comes to a straight, head-on wrangle, the West Indian shines in a glory all his own. Not even a loquacious Oriental can surpass his powers of abuse and lordly contempt for his adversary. If words were bullets, the whole population would perish in 24 hours, innocent and guilty together. To the uninitiated bystander, it seems that an empire is being lost, but the old-timers cease to heed the quarreling and go their way indifferent to the social safety valve of this greatest of natural conversationalists of the tropic world. A young woman on the train in Costa Rica left her seat to speak to a friend, and another girl slipped in next to the window. When the visitor returned, the program began. Back and forth flew claims, charges, and countercharges as to ownership of the seat. With indescribable scorn, the usurper said, Do you want a seat in my lap? Which provoked, 
Ah, now I see how you was raised. Indeed, and you have no manners at all, it is plain to be seen. Back and forth the duel rages until the first claimant sought another seat, saying, I certainly does respect myself too highly to sit by the likes of you. The combat closed thus. When I look upon you, I know what you is, for I can read your face. All of which falls flat without the wholly inimitable accent of the Jamaican dialect. This accent of the British subject of the West Indies is a dialect so peculiar that it defies the most skillful impersonators. Somehow, only those to the manner born seem to be able to acquire or imitate the strong combination of London Cockney and African rhythm. The more intelligent and better educated people speak intelligibly, but it is common to hear alleged English that is almost impossible to understand. There is not the slightest resemblance to the traditional dialect of the southern Negro, and as for expressing it in cold type, there is no alphabet on earth that can represent the sounds and inflections produced. The West Indian in Panama has a certain economic efficiency on the level to which he has been trained, otherwise he would not have been brought to the zone by tens of thousands and retained there through the years of canal construction or on into the present period of operation and maintenance. Under a boss, this man is faithful and efficient, provided the task assigned him is within the scope of his training and ability. And, however slow or inaccurate he may be, he can hardly help earning the wages that he receives. And if he did not work at all, the patience with which he endures the frequent abuse and cursings of the impatient gang bosses ought to be worth something. Certainly, the reader of this would not take what is handed out to the West Indian for ten times his wages. It is true that he is not strong on independent judgment, and that when left to his own counsel he may do some strange things and perhaps very little of anything. But how is a man to develop judgment who has never borne responsibility? Deep down in the heart of this man is a slowly rising resentment against the economic conditions he finds on the zone, and in many cases, silent and dangerous hate is gradually filling the hearts of the unorganized and helpless silver men. Unless conditions are improved, the time may come when this resentment may flare up in a useless and hopeless protest. But it is more likely that the wage scale will be adjusted from time to time and the explosion forestalled. Occasionally, some of these people get away to the United States, but none of them ever return. For them, the patriarchal canal zone offers no attractions compared with the free competition of the states. It is maintained by officials of the zone that the wage scale is as high as available funds will warrant, that if the West Indian had any more money, it would do him no good, and that the increases in wages already granted have fully kept pace with the rise in the cost of living. In matters of personal morals, the West Indian is accused of loose matrimonial practices. A priest said to me one day that if two commandments, the seventh and the eighth, could be omitted from the ten, the West Indian would get along all right. This slander is not deserved, but investigation into facts reveals that the morals of the West Indians are but little better than those of Panama. Concubinage is wisely practiced, with a system of financial support. 
but no more so than everywhere else in the tropics except on the canal zone where moral conditions are exceptionally good the remark of the priest may have been due to the fact that most of the west indians are protestants some characteristics of rare merit and interest occasionally arise among these people they do not sing as well as their northern cousins but they produce orators of no mean ability earnest consistent faithful and affectionate and original in expression the best of these people afford promise of what may be expected when better conditions bring large opportunity like other races not long exposed to civilization the children of these people show surprising precocity they give excellent account of themselves in primary schools and in performances at public entertainments they are letter perfect fifty numbers on a program and never a slip or failure throughout and not a complaint or criticism except that it was a little short one large church established a record by producing a christmas program containing one hundred and eight numbers through the primary years these youngsters sometimes surpass their white friends but the economic pressure of living conditions crowds them nearly all out of school at the end of the fourth or fifth grade once they get a groundwork in the three r's they are considered well educated for life as may be expected the birth rate is high but large families are rare because of the distressing and unnecessarily high rate of infant mortality how could it be otherwise when a whole family lives in one room on $25 a month with food at New York prices? That the Jamaicans are a gregarious folk is to be expected. The social instinct is always strong in any people of African descent. Canal zone bosses complain that their employees prefer to leave the clean and sanitary quarters of the zone and live in the Guachapale and San Miguel districts of Panama and in Colón, where they are crowded together in a way that would prove fatal to a white man. The constant company and crowded conditions do not trouble the West Indians, whereas the rigid restrictions of the silver quarters of the zone he often finds objectionable. What the West Indian most needs is a fair chance. He is cursed and disparaged on every hand. He is to blame for being ragged and unwashed, but when he goes hungry and dresses up, then he is a hopeless spendthrift and a fraudulent dude. It is useless to pay him fair wages because he would spend the money. Unscrupulous landlords are allowed to extort enormous rents for wretched quarters in Panama and Colon because if the Jamaican did not spend his money that way, he would pay it out for something else. He is looked down upon as not being highly educated, and it is claimed that the more he knows, the worse off he is. No matter what happens, he is to blame. If the cholera should appear in Panama, or the gold hill should slide into the canal, the West Indian would be the guilty party. Surely he is worth his wages merely as a target for the verbal explosions of his boss. Some men would have difficulty in holding their jobs were it not for the timely assistance of this goat to the zone. Living conditions in Caledonia and Guachpale would give the New York East Side something to think about. Rooms 10 or 12 feet square are rented out to families who usually stretch a curtain across the middle, sleep huddled together in the rear at night, and live in the front of the flat the rest of the time. From some primitive prejudice comes a violent dislike of fresh air, especially at night, when every room is as nearly as possible hermetically sealed. 
In a tropical temperature, no one has yet explained how the inmates live till morning. Naked children swarm in the streets. At first, the visitor is properly shocked, but soon ceases to notice these ebony cherubs. In time, however, one does get tired of it. Along the sidewalks and in the doorsteps, the evening hours are turned into neighborhood debating societies and wrangling clubs, and between the arguments and disputes and the always nearby street meeting, there is never a dull moment. That is why they prefer living there to the quiet and monotonous life in the silver town on the zone. Religious gatherings on the street are a marked feature of the nightlife of this part of the city. Torchlights and crowds, vigorous singing, enthusiastic exhortations mark the visible features of the efforts of these earnest persuaders of their neighbors to flee from the wrath to come. If street demonstrations were confined to religious meetings, all might be well. While ever-present cantinas dispense cheap and deadly rum, there will always be people who will go hungry and ragged to buy firewater, and with one or two drinks aboard, the West Indian becomes a very talkative and quarrelsome person. Often I have seen sidewalks spattered with blood, and a common sight is that of a couple of policemen leading away a gory victim or a culprit. So scanty is the food ration of these people that the general custom prevails of eating very little during the day and then making a feast at night of whatever food can be secured. The Methodist Missionary School in this district established a soup line at noon for the feeding of hungry babies who came to school without their breakfast and had nothing at home to eat at noon. Any sort of learning under such circumstances was impossible. Three or four things must be supplied if the West Indian is to rise above his present level. He needs living wages, he needs intelligent and responsible leadership, he needs a better education, and he needs a broader social basis and a wider horizon for his circle of life. There are a few lawyers and doctors and teachers of this race, and there are a number of preachers who consider themselves to be the intellectuals, but there is no concert or purpose or plan for progress among the people. Each man is intent upon exalting his own personal prominence or furthering the interests of the little group to which he belongs. West Indian life at present is segregated into little cliques and rings represented by churches, lodges, dancing clubs, and other organizations. So far, no common cause has united any of these factors in any program of progress. So intent are they upon individual emphasis that any thought of the social whole seems almost impossible. Several efforts have been made to unite in a common program of service the different churches in a given community, but so far small success has attended these worthy plans. Perhaps more than almost anything else, the West Indian needs racial self-respect. He is humble enough before his boss, and if well-treated, is loyal and faithful. But for his own kind, he has little appreciation. I will never work for my own color, boasted a proud cook one day. And one of the most difficult problems of the missionary grows out of the fact that the West Indians generally despise each other. To arouse leadership and stimulate ambition among a people who look down upon themselves is a big task. The individual man will have to get his mind on something besides his effort to exalt himself above all his fellows 
before any great progress can be made. The fundamental trouble with the West Indian is that he looks up to those whom he considers his superiors, and he looks down upon everybody else. It seems difficult for him to look across or on a level and recognize other people as being on the same plane with himself. The educational equipment of these people needs to be extended beyond the present mere elements of reading, writing, and arithmetic. Some intellectual window into the great world out beyond the Caribbean Sea must be provided if there is to be deliverance from the superstition and iron-bound customs that have held them fast for 10,000 years. What the West Indian needs is not more vigorous swaying of congregations nor more loudly shouting enthusiasts, but a program of Christian living that will enlarge the boundaries of life and push back the horizons of interest. Debating societies, reading courses, study clubs, extension lectures, night schools, vocational training, good moving picture programs, all of these will do much to break the spell of the past and introduce new ideas where they will take root and bear harvest. Here is a fertile field for Christian settlement, but the settlement worker should be a resident of the community. One difficulty with the mission work now conducted is that it is done from the top down and from the outside in. Any attempt toward higher education will need some endowment. It is a tragedy that these people, out of their wretched poverty, are compelled to pay tuition fees for the meager education that their children receive. Some of the plans now being formulated for a broader work in these communities deserve every encouragement and support. It is greatly to the credit to the West Indian that he nearly always manages in some way to send his children to school cost what it may. Considering his opportunities, he does well. If the American people were suddenly asked to pay one or two dollars a month for each child sent to school, there would be educational revolution. It is the intention of the canal's own government to house its employees on the zone as soon as quarters can be provided, but this will require some time. As all silver employees are charged a monthly rent for these quarters, the project is a business matter for the zone. Twelve families are usually quartered in one two-story house, two rooms and a porch section to the family, with two washrooms and sanitary quarters for the whole house. At $5 per month rent for each family, the house yields an income of $840 per year. In a building of about the same size, four white families would be quartered rent-free. There is abundant opportunity in the Republic of Panama for the organization of agricultural colonization schemes. Good land is plentiful. Families could be placed on the land without much housing expense, and if food could be supplied them for a few months, self-support would soon be established. Some philanthropists might render valuable service and open up new opportunities for a large number of these people by placing them out on the land where each family could have its own house and where better conditions prevail. A colony of 1,000 souls grouped about a central church and school and store would afford new hope and better living to these dwellers in the crowded tenements. What may be the future of the West Indian on the Isthmus is not yet clearly established, and the Canal Zone authorities have heretofore regarded the silver men as more of a temporary necessity than permanent residence. 
As industrial conditions on the zone become more stable, however, it appears that there will always be needed a large labor force with a minimum of about 20,000 people, and unless some new factor appears or is imported, the West Indian is going to supply this labor demand for years to come. This being the case, the laborer is worthy of his hire and should be paid a fair wage for what he does and the missionaries and social workers who are interested in the welfare of these people need a coordinated and unified program of religious and educational advance. So long as the present disjointed and unconnected methods are followed, scattering and sometimes inharmonious results will appear. So long as there is work for a laborer in Panama, so long the Caribbean man will be found here in such numbers as may be needed, and so long as he is here, he, at least, deserves good treatment. End of chapter 13